hello and welcome to this latest Hollywell Trust Conversations podcast and it's the 18th and the last in this series and you've stuck with us then fair play um, thanks very much and well done to you so this episode's a special one as um, we'll review the series along with my colleague who's here every week Paul Gosling Paul how's the form as good as ever Gerard and you I dead on I dead on so Paul it probably makes sense to if we start the review at the beginning of the series and cast our minds all the way back then when we were trying to mark the 25 years on from the Good Friday Agreement. So at the time, our whole society seemed to be in two minds about whether they celebrate or else they bemoan the lack of government. And despite this, there was a level of positivity about the events remembering negotiations that largely ended the violence here. Yes, and I think we should appreciate that we heard from three people for our podcast who were at the table during those negotiations back 25 years earlier. And we listened to Avila Kilmurray of the Women's Coalition, who explained just how significant the Women's Coalition had been in terms of successfully pushing for the Civic Forum, which many of us still mourn the loss of, as mm-hmm. I know you do, Gerard, yeah. as well as women's rights and also social concerns. But we also heard from Paul Bew, Lord Bew, who was influential on David Trimble's decision to sign the Good Friday Agreement, Belfast Agreement we would prefer. And we also heard from Ray Bassett, who was part of the Irish government's team. Now, Ray emphasised that the Good Friday Agreement was the culmination of years of conversations between all the interested parties. OK, so let's listen to uh, Ray's observations. The negotiations got off um, to a kind of very slow start and about a year or so into the talks we had a, a bit like a soccer team we, we replaced the manager and uh dermot gallagher came in and dermot decided to operate on a level that he he chose a certain number of people from around the, the department and abroad to come together and in what was known as the talks team and our job is really to not just ser- service the talks but to sort of put together um, the policy background to it and also probably equally important to gradually establish linkages with the other participants in the in the in, in the talks um, particularly Sinn Féin and um, the loyalists um, because the whole point of the of the talks as far as we were concerned was essentially to bring all violence to an end which meant in, re- in respect that we had to bring the Republican movement into an into a position where they felt that th- th- there wouldn't be any further violence. Now there'd been a lot of private and back channel discussions, a lot of it involving Derry and um, some of the participants, maybe Brendan Duddy and Dennis Bradley, and that has come out much more in the open. But there had been a lot of TikToking going on privately. Okay, so it's great that we've experienced an end of decades of violence here, but we still have serious political disagreements, Paul, as, as you'll know, in particular about the legacy of the conflict and whether potentially criminal acts from the time of the Troubles should still be investigated, prosecuted and punished. And that brings us to the Legacy Act. And we looked at that in a couple of different podcasts from the series, um, both when it was still a proposal and subsequent to its enactment. Yes, uh, in the third episode of the series, <laughs> Alison Kilpatrick, Northern Ireland's Human Rights Commissioner, made a passionate call for respect for human rights warning specifically about the impact of what was then being called the Legacy Bill 
and also about calls from some members of the Conservative Party to remove the UK from the European Convention on Human Rights. Now, that's, of course, a conversation that's still taking place. Uh, and the ECHR was also central to the Good Friday Agreement. So, so let's listen to Alison. And the Good Friday Agreement is absolutely hinged on membership of the ECHR, but more than that, direct effect. So we would complain, I think, at the Commission that it still hasn't been given sufficient direct effect uh, and there still isn't adequate redress um, as per the, the Good Friday Agreement, but certainly the Human Rights Act went a long way. So if we leave, if we repeal the Human Rights Act, replace it with the Bill of Rights, that will leave us in breach of the Good Friday Agreement and significantly less well off. If we leave the ECHR, which is almost unthinkable, um, certainly to me, then I think we are certainly sending out a signal across the world what our future intentions are. And we are certainly not going to be able to guarantee rights, protections and dignity and respect to all people of Northern Ireland. You certainly won't be able to get into court to try and enforce them if you allege uh, that you've suffered breaches. So in, in my view, it is, um, and I don't think catastrophic is too strong a word. So as you say, Paul, Alison also warned about the legislation relating to troubles, prosecutions and the Legacy Act. Commission is very clear that the, the bill, if it progressed, would be in breach of uh, the Human Rights Act, would be in breach specifically of Article 2 of the ECHR. And not in any small measure either. It would be fundamental breach of the ECHR because what it would do is say that firstly, the right to life in Northern Ireland um, cannot be effectively protected because there is no investigatory obligation. The reason we have this requirement for an independent Article 2 investigation where particularly um, the state may be implicated is that it is the only way really of ensuring that the right to life, the substantive right to life is protected. Because if you can't have a proper investigation following the taking of the life, find out whether it was lawful or not lawful, whether it could have been avoided, etc., what the truth is for the family members who are left behind, then the right to life doesn't mean very much at all. And since the Legacy Act was passed, Paul, we have considered the impact of that. I'm a fair from Peter Sheridan, a former senior officer with the REC and PSNI, who's now the Commissioner for Investigations at the Independent Commission for Reconciliation and Information Recovery. While this body investigates past events from the trouble, the Act limits criminal investigations, legal proceedings, inquests, and police complaints. So let's remind ourselves of what Peter, uh, or listen to Peter explain in the process. But it will be about uh, a family member, a close family member, being able to request from the Commission um, of somebody who's a bereaved family um, an investigation or request for information about the death of their loved one or uh, with a loved one with serious injury. So out of that, we're proposing three stages in that. One will be an engagement stage. So naturally, people come in to see somebody in the commission to build a relationship and, and to find out more about what is it they want to know, because there, there's a wide variety of difference of what families want to know um, about the death of their loved one. Some people want um, investigations that will lead to uh, court cases. Some people just simply want to know the simplest things. I mean, I recall in the past somebody wanting to to know what happened, the the watch that their husband was wearing at the time. That's the only thing they want to know. Um, so there are lots of things that people want to. Do. So the first part of the the engagement will be trying to understand what it is that the commissioners can do for them. The second will be then as a request to the family of the person who died or suffered serious harm 
um, finding about more details about about the last moments of their life of their loved one. Um, you know, whatever that is, that we the the somebody who comes into the commission are entitled to ask me as the commissioner for investigations five, ten, fifteen, twenty questions that they want answered, and I'm duty bound to try and answer those questions. And th those requests for information then are based on the uh, answers will be based on the balance of probability. So it's not to the legislative standard, but trying to find out more information about their their loved ones. I was involved in a, in a case in, in, in when I was in Cooperation Ireland where the widow simply wanted about four or five questions answered from somebody who's involved in the death of her husband. And the most simplest questions, they weren't questions that somebody who might be um, in the law might understand, but it was simple questions like, were you looking through our windows during the night? Did you follow our kids to the swimming pool? Did you follow them to school? Almost those simple questions, but they had been with that person for 40 years. So trying to find answers to the, those type of questions. The second type of investigation then would be called, called uh, liability focused. And that would aim to establish all of the circumstances of the death and collect evidence to a standard that could support a criminal prosecution. Um, and as well as trying to end, answer any remaining questions they might have on the edges of all that. Uh, so there may be some limited circumstances where we're able to invest cases, investigate cases and provide um, evidence that to take it to a court standard. Although I have to be honest with people that those cases, as we all know, because of the fragmented way and the, the uh, way that the, all of those cases have been examined since the Belfast Good Friday Agreement of cases having collapsed, piecemeal approach to it, that the, the likelihood of successful prosecutions is vanishingly small. It's not to say there won't be and can't be, uh, but I do want to not, you know, to, to not hide from people that, that trying to find evidence that's 30 and 40 and 50 years old to a today's standard becomes increasingly more difficult. But nevertheless, one of those then there'll be that liability focused investigation, trying to discover that. The third one then will be culpability focused and that'll be, again, a proactive investigation following requests from somebody. And the aim will be to establish all of the circumstances of the death or the harmful conduct, as, as well to answer any specific questions, uh, and as well as additional evidence from witnesses and subject of interest. And, and then to present findings on the balance of probability. So that's a lower standard in the law. So it's not the legal standard of or the, the criminal standard beyond a reasonable doubt, but on the balance of probabilities. But the idea is to recover as much information as possible to share with the families of bereaved. But the Legacy Act and the new investigations process is not the only hangover from the conflict. Aye, that's true, Paul. We still have paramilitaries. Yeah, we certainly do. And we know that some paramilitary organisations have evolved into organised crime gangs, dealing in drugs, legal money laundering and extortion. Taken together, this constitutes an ongoing coercive control of communities. Now, we heard from Professor Dominic Bryan, who is Joint Chair of the Commission on Flags, Identity, Culture and Tradition, on why there needs to be a stronger focus on removing flags and other signals of territorial demarcation and how allowing those, as we do at the moment, that provides paramilitary groups a continuing form of what might be termed legitimisation. OK, so let's listen to Dominic Brown. Some of the recent evidence from the Lord Island Life and Science Survey suggests the sense of intimidation has gone up to some of its highest levels for some time. Um, it's, inter it's an interesting bit of the survey because I'm not quite sure 
having been a watcher of this for 25 years or so, I can't quite put my finger on why that might be at the moment. But there is no doubt that the act, that activity um, acts to give a sense of control. It's an activity that is undertaken almost always by groups of men, quite well organized. There's a quite a gendered aspect to all of this as well. And if you ask people, lots of people, if they, if they like the flag, I mean, some people object more than others, but the idea that you would go and take down the flags that have been put up. So Dominic makes a, a very good point about the role of men in paramilitaries, which leads to the question of whether there's a connection between the violence of the troubles, how that reinforced gender roles and what's happening today, with Northern Ireland recording one of the highest levels of domestic violence of any place in Western Europe. That's correct, yes, Jared. Now, we heard from Elaine Crory, lobbyist at the Women's Resource and Development Agency. She pointed to the structure of society here in Northern Ireland today, and that being influenced by the violence of the past and the role of men in that violence. So, so let's listen to Elaine. We have a very macho culture here. And it's evident in the fact that whenever you speak about these issues, including, for example, when Women's Aid and others were leading a campaign to try and get a violence against women and girls strategy, we now have a draft version of that. But it's our first ever draft and we still don't have the actual strategy. And even when they started opening their conversation and MLA started to speak about it publicly and then there was a vote in the assembly. Throughout all that time, there was a lot of public backlash of people saying, well, why are you making it out like this is a bigger problem than it really is? Every time there's a, a tragic, you know, horrendous murder of a woman or a girl in this place, this conversation comes up again. Why are you making it seem like it's a bigger problem than it is? Or why are you pointing the figure, finger at all men? And the answer is, we're not pointing the finger at all men. Apart from the actual individual person or people who responsible for the act, there's a big, we're, we're pointing the finger at a culture not at, at men as individuals, but as at a culture that has enabled this to happen. And for a very, very long time throughout the conflict, as well as these great injustices that took most of the public attention, there was also the reality that the police weren't particularly trusted by approximately half the community. And by the other half of the community, the police came from that community by and large. And so very often there was a feeling of a lack of privacy. And also sometimes, you know, police's hands weren't fully clean either it is still true and this is not unique to northern ireland that there is a problem with domestic abuse and sexual violence within the police force um and perhaps it's, it's that degree of power that actually attracts some people like that to a role like police in the first place okay so that also connects to the fact that we still have peace walls especially in belfast not so much here in Derry, and though we do still have interface tensions here but we do have ongoing projects that we heard, heard from they tackle that. Yeah, and uh, specifically we heard from Kyra Reynolds, development worker at the Peace Barrier Programme, on the ongoing work at the Bishop Street Interface in Derry, which is bringing populations together who come from different traditions. I'm funded by the International Fund for Ireland to build confidence across the Bishop Street Fountain Interface in Derry. Um, so it's trying to bring that minority um, Protestant Unionist Loyalist community together with the majority Nationalist community. It's it's not easy, especially when they're physically separated by um, you know bricks and mortar. So we do a wide variety of things. Um, sometimes you have to be creative and a wee bit mad to come up with things that will bring people together. But you always find that a good starting point is identifying something that they all have in common. 
So I'll give you an example. We um, started in 2021, we started a handshed woman group. And you find that women are really good at identifying what they have in common. Um, so we've got over kind of 170 women approximately in that wee group. And they are from the nationalist and the Protestant uh, community. And they uh, come together and do everything from chat about what it's like to um, be widowed, what it's like to have children. Um, you know, they have these dialogues over, you know, sort of safe activities, be it arts and crafts, physical activity. And then we kind of move them along gradually and at their own pace towards more difficult conversations. And that includes things like working with the Playhouse to run out uh, theatre of witness workshops. And that might be where they go and they listen to the stories of ex-combatants, ex-soldiers, um, you know, ex-police, um, ex-IRA members. And they start to recognise um, through those stories that the people that were the enemy as such um, are human. And sometimes they find that quite unbelievable. And, um, you know, they begin to identify that they can see why these people went into situations that they did. You know, an example being that a lot of the um, soldiers that were deployed to Northern Ireland were um, young men with no other opportunities. Um, you know, they kind of see the reasons behind it other than the narrative that was presented to them. Um, you know, we've done some really hard-hitting stuff. Like, we had a group of women um, write their own short play called This Is Us. And it was facilitated by the brilliant um, poet and playwright Anne McMaster. And um, there's an exhibition up on the Peace Wall um, of dialogue sessions that were facilitated by her. Um, and it's simple, very simple quotes from women about what it was like to be a child growing up in the Troubles. Okay, but when the Good Friday Agreement was signed, we expected not only an end to Peace Walls, but also a peace dividend. Um, but analysis has suggested more, most of the so-called peace dividend has gone south, not north. Um, this is also something we also explored on a podcast, Paul. Yes, um, we heard from Dr. Kira Fitzpatrick of Ulster University. Now, she told us of the scale of poverty that continues to afflict our society all these years on from the peace talks and agreement. My feeling is that working class communities are not feeling any sort of a peace dividend at all. In fact, Many community workers and other people who are living in working class communities across Northern Ireland and in the Northwest have expressed that things have never been worse than they currently are. Um, and this is in the context of uh, avalanche of cuts across education, communities, health that are being forced upon communities in Northern Ireland. Now, significantly, Kira connects the ongoing deprivation with the continuing presence of paramilitaries. Now, she suggests that poverty is helping to keep them going. You know, that fractured peace in places like Newton Ards, where we have a um, serious paramilitary influence there, um, and it is a depraved community, and it's being exploited for many of those reasons and it's becoming quite hard to manage. And we could see similar situations across Northern Ireland if there is nothing put in place in terms of mitigating the huge deprivation that is going to result from the, cult the cuts 
that are going to be made over the next few months. My Paul, we've looked uh, in this podcast in detail at the Good Friday Agreement and the imperfect peace that's flowed out of it. And we've also considered in many of the podcasts the challenges that they're in the Northwest continue to face. Can you quickly take us through, through those issues and remind us of what they are? Yeah, we had two themes to the podcast, really. One, as I say, was that communal division, community division. The second theme has been to consider the difficulties we face in the Northwest. Now, individual podcasts have asked questions around whether we have benefited, as we should, from the UK government's levelling up fund. We also examined the limited transport connectivity for the region and the environmental crisis at the Mumbai illegal waste dump on the edge of Derry. As well as that, podcasts have examined what has happened at Derry's two major regeneration sites, slow but real progress at Ebrington and very little progress at Fort George. And of course, we've also discussed the demand for university expansion in one of the most recent podcasts. Okay, so it's certainly been a comprehensive, comprehensive even this season of podcasts. And other podcasts heard more about what Hollywell Trust has been doing, what our own organisation has been doing. Uh, within the Good Relations Programme and as part of our 30 podcast of, of many citizens' assemblies. And it's been quite a year. And because we've released the podcast on a fortnightly basis with a break over the holidays, it has, in fact, just covered short of the calendar year. So the series is now over, but the Hollywell Trust has a comprehensive programme of new activities, and you can find out more about those on our website, which is hollywelltrust.com, as well as listen to all of the previous episodes from this podcast series. So a few thanks now at the end of the series must go, as always, to the Community Relations Council for the funding of the podcast. Really much appreciated and obviously wouldn't be possible without them. And also thanks to Paul and his hard work on all of this podcast, to all of our guests and contributors who've taken part in all the different episodes, to Michael Barways, who's helped with the editing of the podcast, and to Fiona Corbin, who stepped in and helped co-facilitate at certain points, and to Kevin Warren for helping us to get them out and raise the awareness of it all. So that's goodbye from Paul and myself. Goodbye.